There is no reason that this country can't do today what our forefathers were able to do in the 30s, which is deliver to rural areas the same kind of life that you can get in the rest of the country. This is episode 229 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. More and more rural telephone and electric cooperatives are offering high-quality internet access to their members. Why? Because rural communities are tired of waiting for national providers to bring the connectivity they need, and because the business model works. Jonathan Chambers, a partner with Connexon and former head of the FCC Office of Strategic Planning and Policy Analysis, joins Christopher this week. They talk about the role of electric cooperatives in bringing broadband to rural America. Jonathan points out how cooperative fiber to the home deployments work so well in rural America, where so many people need and want them. Chris and Jonathan discuss political perceptions, how events in D.C. have sculpted the current Internet access situation in rural America, and how Washington could help local communities in the future. Now here are Chris and Jonathan Chambers on rural electric cooperatives and ways federal policy can improve rural connectivity. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm talking with Jonathan Chambers. Uh, He's a partner with Connexon and formerly the head of the FCC Office of Strategic Planning and Policy Analysis. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. I think some of the people who listen to this show may have either seen you or seen videos with you um, in it in which um, you were talking about your ideas for rural America. Um, And I highly recommend that people look into those if they're able to. Uh, But I wanted to start with um, kind of a, a poke at what is common knowledge, which is that it is just too expensive to build fiber to the home in rural America. How do you react? So there are some who uh, have come to believe it's too expensive to build fiber uh, in in lots of parts of the country. Uh, People know now Google Fiber, which launched a very public and very uh, inspiring fiber effort, getting the whole country involved in gigabit service, uh, has pulled back its own plans to deploy fiber. What we're seeing, uh, my partner and I, who work with rural electric cooperatives throughout the country, is that co-ops can build and are building fiber to the home in the most remote areas of the country, are doing so without any government support, are doing so profitably, and are delivering services, one gigabit service, 100 megabit service, at affordable prices to their members. So it had been common wisdom for many, many years at the FCC and all the smart people who who analyze this, that building fiber to the home was a step too far for rural America. And as it turns out, uh, it's not at all. Uh, We're building fiber to the home throughout the country uh, in rural population densities of three and four and five and and commonly less than 10 homes per mile. It, It is an exciting time to be in this particular part of, of the business. Uh, You had mentioned I was with the FCC. Um, I was with the FCC for four years, but I'm now back doing what what I really enjoy doing, which is working with companies that build networks. 
You had mentioned your partner. I think it's worth uh, pointing out. He's uh, actually a former guest of our podcast, Randy Clint, doing uh, wonderful work uh, with Ozarks and also with uh, Connexon, um, formerly with Como. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how co-ops are able to make this work when it's, um, like I said, it's common knowledge that there's just, you know, the business model falls apart. Um, why are co-ops so special? Yeah, so, you know, every... Uh... Every good story has a has a good protagonist, and and the story of electric co-ops building fiber to the home, the protagonist there is Randy Clint. Randy was was working at a cooperative in Central Missouri called Como, and Como had applied for a grant as part of the Recovery Act funding to build a fiber to the home project in in rural Missouri, uh, and the best thing that happened for rural Missouri, for rural America, was that Randy and Como were turned down by the federal government when they applied for that grant. Because as a consequence of having been turned down, you know, Randy's the type of person who, you know, if you tell him you can't do something, he just tries harder and wants to prove people wrong. He and, and the membership of his co-op had gotten so, um, uh, so enthused about building a fiber network that when they were turned down, they decided to proceed anyway. And they took out a loan from CoBank. They built a fiber to the network, which today provides service to every uh, availability, to every single one of their members. About half of their members take service. They offer 100 megabit per second service for 49.95, gigabit service for 79.95. They were the first, the first company anywhere uh, to sell gigabit service in rural America. And that network is the most complete and profitable network of its kind in the country. Uh, and other co-ops in the country have started to adopt the same methods. And you know, these electric cooperatives have an existing infrastructure in place. So they're leveraging an existing infrastructure. They have poles and ducts and conduits and rights of way. They have bucket trucks and linemen. They're used to responding to storms and, and um, emergencies in the middle of the night. Uh, they have a um, they have equity in their current electric system. They have the capacity to borrow funds to continue to build. But above everything else, they're a membership organization. I know some people think that the benefit of say an electric cooperative or a telephone cooperative is that they're oftentimes not for profits. Uh, they're not all not for profit. The real benefit is that it's a membership organization, and as a membership organization, the members decide how they want to invest their own, uh, their own money, their own equity. You have a built-in base of interest when you start a project like this. You're only building because the membership wants it, and that doesn't mean it translates into 100% of the members buying the service, but part of the arrangement here is you're planning on 100% availability. You're serving everyone because that's the ethos of the cooperative movement that started uh, in the 30s in these rural areas and today serves 80-plus percent of the geography of the country. Uh, what they do today, what the dozens of electric co-ops are doing today is, is similar to what their sort of grandparents or great-grandparents did in the 30s, which is provide a service that no one else is willing to provide. 
In the 30s, it was the investor-owned utilities that were unwilling to build into rural areas. Today, it's the exact same story with fiber networks. What they offer is unique, but it's consistent with the way people have thought of telecommunications networks, consistent with the way people think of networks in general, which is the network is stronger if you reach everybody. The network is stronger if everybody gets on the network. And so when we design these networks, when we write business plans for these networks, when we execute on the business plan, we always talk about serving every single person and serving every single person with the same level of service. Everybody gets one gigabit service or 100 megabit per second service. You don't offer a better service to people who live closer to, in the telephone world, to a central office and a, and a, and a slower speed when you live further out. You don't put data caps. You don't put tricky pricing in and try to encourage people to come in for a few months and then raise the pricing. The pricing, the service level, all of it is, is all of a piece, which is to say it's a cooperative community effort. Uh, and it's, you know, it's in the tradition, sort of in the best of American and rural traditions in this country. It's still at the early stages, but like many things in life, you can see something at an early stage and recognize its potential. One of the things that comes to mind as you're saying all these things is these are the sorts of things that I think a lot of people associate with more of a, a left-wing philosophy. And, and in fact, even, you know, I think people on the left associate co-ops with socialism. And historically, some people on the right did. Uh, now, people on the right, I think, more often associate cooperatives with private organizations. Um, you mentioned it's not about the profit or the nonprofit. It's about being a membership org, which I, I think is worth reiterating. But I want to just note, you're you're more conservative and um and I wanted to know, you know, this is a time in which I think our country might be as divided as it's been in, in certainly living memory. You pretty much are summing up um, incredibly important values in terms of getting everyone connected. Um, what do you respond to those? And I think it's more commonly a conservative critique that, hey, if you choose to live in a rural area, you get worse service. Am I wrong in thinking that's more of a conservative position? I'm a lifelong Republican. I'm a conservative People I work with in rural America tend to be Republicans. They live in the red states. They live in the red areas of the red states. I've never had a, co- a political conversation with, with, with anybody from a co-op. Uh, it doesn't come up. I mean, this isn't... Um, I live inside, inside the Beltway in Washington, and I have for most of my life. But I travel every week, and I travel several days a week in, in rural areas. I don't find people talk to me about politics. They talk to you about solving problems. Which is, uh, you know, refreshing, because um, uh, the politics get tiring, even for those of us who, or maybe especially for those of us who, who live inside Washington. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's, it's um, and I, you know, it's not like a right-left thing, but these are, these are, these are businesses, I mean, first and foremost, the co-ops are businesses. It's not, it's not like a, a do-gooder organization or a, you know, a community organization that's set out to try to... It, it's, it's a business, first and foremost. The business that was established to provide electricity service and provide other services to its members. The actual organization is, as a membership organization, just means that the business is owned by its members. 
being owned by members, being owned by shareholders, being owned by a, a one single private entity. Those are just different business structures. In this case, the business structure is is membership. Okay, this is an American thing. I guess this is. I guess that's the the point I'd like to make sure you understand. It's not a right left, red blue, conservative, liberal, uh, rural, urban. This is an American tradition. I'll tell you one quick story about my time in government. So I was at the FCC for four years. I was promoting better service for rural areas and changing the way the FCC would go about it. Uh, that is to say, the FCC spends a lot of money every year, $4.5 billion a year, for service in rural areas. Uh, and, and the level of service the FCC had been advocating at the time that I'm talking about, they were advocating four megabit per second service, which is, 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 is paltry and inadequate and, and substandard. And uh, I became a very vocal critic of that level of service, of the expectation that that's all the government or the telephone companies or the internet service providers could provide in rural areas. Uh, I'm, um, I'm fond of a saying by Michael Gerson, who, who worked for President Bush years ago. Um, in a different context, he talked about the soft bigotry of low expectations. I think that's been the FCC's view of rural America for a long time. So at a time when the FCC had said in the National Broadband Plan that the goal was 100 megabits per second for 100 million households. What the FCC was saying explicitly was those 100 million households, well, that's not rural America. There's 116, 117 million households in the country. And, and it wasn't just that people like round numbers. So the FCC was saying, well, 100 megabits for 100 million households, and those are nice round numbers. The FCC followed up with that, saying what should be expected in rural America and what they were expecting was four megabits per second at the same time. They were expecting 100 megabits per second elsewhere. It's not just about speed, because speed is what enables activity, business activity and social activity and education and learning and healthcare and other things that, that we all do on the Internet today. So the expectation was low, and that's what I began to criticize. And I was stopped in a hallway one day by somebody, a lobbyist for one of the large telephone companies, who said to me, what do you think you're doing? He said, don't you know, we had a deal. And what this lobbyist meant was, in the previous administration, before I had been there. When you say previous, was that under Janikowski before you were there, or was that the previous, like under the Bush administration? I was hired by Julius Janikowski, but it was, it, it was the deal that was set in 2010, 2011 was right. the deal that this person was referring to. Right. So for people who weren't aware, that was the Obama administration. It was the, the, it was the previous uh, FCC administrator, or I'm sorry, chairman. Yes, that's right. That's right. The deal this person was referring to is a deal that in rural areas, the large telephone companies would continue to get billions of dollars a year in public support and would have to offer only four megabits per second speed. That was the deal. I have been a critic of the FCC for a long time, including when I was there. My criticism isn't that I, I am against government. I've worked in government. It shouldn't be viewed as sort of a personal attack that I don't like certain people or it, it's that I think there are, there are, the FCC has at times over the years uh, been interested in deal making. Uh, there have been chairmen over the years 
who have enjoyed merger reviews because it's allowed them to cut a deal. Regulatory policy, rulemakings, merger review, other things in which the FCC has, in a sense, cut a deal for the American people, but, but it's, it's deal-making. I've long been opposed to sort of the regulator as deal-maker. And, you know, I tell, I tell you something that I, I've learned from my rabbi, which is the difference between a contract and a covenant. For a lawyer, a contract is when both parties have given consideration, that is, both, both parties give something and get something in return. It's oftentimes a zero-sum game. A covenant is never a zero-sum game. A covenant is something which binds people together and rises and lifts all people up. What the co-ops I work with understand is this notion of covenant. Again, it's not a right or left notion. It's an American notion. It's an historic notion. We have a covenant in this country. A covenant can be thought of in three words, we the people. The people I work with, the rural electric co-ops, they understand covenant. They understand that they're formed of their members, by their members, for their members, to better the lives of their members. And in the case of Internet service, which is the economic issue of the day for rural America, they understand that if they don't stand up, their communities will be the worse off. So all across America, rural electric co-ops are standing up. They're investing their own money. They're investing their members' money. They're borrowing money in order to build world-class Internet systems because they understand what it meant in the 30s, and they understand that's what it'll mean for the kids, their grandkids, the future of their communities. A key question in my mind is to what extent the federal government is helping these co-ops and to what extent it might be hindering uh, the co-ops. Let's start with hindering because we've kind of been on that theme a little bit. Um, are there things the federal government is doing that's making life harder for the co-ops to get this done? The federal government has just simply not helped. It has the potential to help. There are, there are some states in which co-ops uh, have not been permitted to offer internet services, but um, I think structurally we're finding a way to offer service throughout the country. I, I, wouldn't, again, I, I wouldn't say the federal government uh, that is, hasn't hindered other than out of benign neglect. I'd say the greatest hindrance that the FCC or the federal government, um, the greatest hindrance has been this low expectation, this notion that Poor service is good enough for some parts of the country or some people in the country. This notion that satellite service or fixed wireless service, things that are not subscribed to in great numbers or by whole communities anywhere in the country, but that somehow ought to be a good enough uh, level of service for rural America. And then, and then along the way, this isn't a, again, it isn't a, a, a hindrance so much as it's been a mistake. That the FCC, and again, all the sort of smart people that's hired over the years to look at these issues, have made a fundamental mistake in how they evaluated the cost of building networks in rural areas. The FCC has looked at and spent a lot of time and money and energy developing 
a cost model which attempted to define with great precision down to the penny and the tenth of a penny what it would cost to provide fiber to the home service to every part of the country. And that cost model is the basis upon which the FCC has spent and has committed tens of billions of dollars, over $30 billion in just the last year alone committed by the FCC. And that cost model is simply inaccurate. It simply does not capture lots of aspects of building a network which already exists. That is, if you have existing infrastructure in place, if you can leverage infrastructure, if your cost of building is less than the model assumes it to be, all of that has led to an over-expenditure that is an allocation of resources to places it need not go and not spending money in areas that it does need to go and not spending money on the types of services that can and will be built. As I mentioned before, the co-ops I work with are building without any federal money. That's not to say that money doesn't help. Money can always help. But where money really helps is in the most remote areas of the country, in areas where there's just two or three or five homes per mile. And as odd as this will sound to anybody listening in, the FCC made a decision several years ago not to give any money to those areas because the FCC considered it too expensive. That's the very area that needs money. Well, at the same time, the FCC has given tens of billions of dollars to areas where it need not give any money. So there's been this misallocation of resource. We can get fiber to the home to every home today that has an electric line. That's not just a pipe dream. It's happening. And if the FCC would do like two things, one, set the standards high, and two, allocate resource where it's needed. It could get that job done. But even if the FCC does nothing, we'll still do it. One of the things that I think people don't always realize is how much money is already being spent. You you noted that already. And to some extent, just redirecting that toward uh, loans rather than giving money away to co-ops, you know, loans that might be on favorable terms or might gently subsidize the interest rate in certain areas. You know, I think we're talking about, we're not even necessarily talking about spending new money if they would spend it wisely. But one of the things that you recently wrote, I think, suggests that you know, I, I go back in my in my head whether or not this is an issue of um, ignorance or malice. Um, not really malice, but but sort of you know neglect. And in you note, um, there's a perception among Democrats that Republicans like corporate welfare, and they're going to give money to the telephone companies uh, to keep Republicans on the Hill happy. Um, and then a, a separate quote in this blog post is that you said we're Democrats and the rural Americans are not our people. Do you have a sense that? Let me just step in. one more thing is that I feel like in a lot of issues, there's groups that organize around this think, you know, if we just had someone high up at the FCC, we could break through and we could get things done. You know, you're that person. And I think you left the FCC in a lot of frustration after trying to break through and, and not being able to really dent the mentality um, of the FCC folks. Let me remark on one thing, which is capital for building in rural areas is not a problem. We borrow money, private banks, co-bank loans money, publicly uh, uh, the rural utility service lends money. Um, we haven't found any problem getting capital. Uh, it, it would be helpful 
to get some of the money that's spent, a fraction of the money that's spent um, by the federal government every year to support telephone companies, to have that spent uh, in a competitive way where the best service could could get access to the money and prevail. Look, I don't, I, you, you know, you made some a nice remark about me. I, I want to be as clear as I can. I was in the government for a few years, but I never thought any of this was about me or um, uh, what I thought. I spent most of my time while I was in the government trying to reach out to people and and hear their stories. Um, I, it was very a great compliment paid to me over the years that I got invited to speak in a lot of places, and I still go speak a lot of places. Um, and I used to use a line at the end of it. I said, I, I never go someplace to just speak. I said, I get invited to talk, but I always come to listen. And I always spent at least the day, wherever I went, to ask people to come to me and just tell me about their lives and their stories. Great people at the FCC. There's some not so great people at the FCC. It's 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 not so much a personality thing. It's natural in federal government that people sit in these offices and they get visited by lobbyists and they get they get praised for what they do and they get complimented for their views and then. And, and, and it's a very insular world. I used to say to people, just get out of Washington. Um, go out and spend as much time as you can in areas where you're talking to people where your policies are affecting those people. You know, when I, what I, when I talk to co-ops, co-op boards and others, I always say, look, I, I thought of one rule of thumb, which is you put the member's interest first. You put the member's interest first and everything else follows. And as corny as that sounds, and as sanctimonious maybe as it sounds, I viewed that as my role at the FCC. That is, I, when I've been in government, it was a privilege. I viewed as my job, my boss, the people of the country, the people of the United States of America. That's who I worked for. I didn't work for any particular chairman. I didn't work for an institution. I didn't work for a bureaucracy. I work for the people. I still do. The people I work for now are members of rural electric co-ops. I get a charge out of working with, with people where you have a chance to affect their lives. And, and as much as you know, people have joked with me about how you know, I think broadband, you know, like broadband's the answer to everything, I mean, you know, it's not... I don't really think that, but that's what I do for a living. So um, I've been there. <laughs> I walked into a, a colleague's office one day at the FCC, and I said something like, a half a million of our fellow Americans, kids, families, veterans, are going to sleep on the streets tonight, and it's cold out there. And the guy looked at me, and he said, so what, Chambers, your your answer is broadband. And <laughs> I said, I said, well, no, you know, I, I said, but I don't work for the how, you know, Department of Housing and Urban Development. I don't work in the housing field. I, I don't, I don't really know a solution to, to homelessness. I said, but what I do know is when I 
when I come to work in the morning and I drive in a certain direction, I, I pass by the Martin Luther King Jr. Library um, downtown in Washington. And, say I, and I'll see sometimes a line out front waiting for the library to open. And that line is for people waiting to get in so that they can use the free computers and Internet access in that library. And I said, when I leave at night, sometimes if I take that same route home and I pass by that same library, I said, I see who those people are because they're homeless shelter buses parked out front of the library waiting to take people back to the shelters. So it's not an answer to everything, but sometimes it's just enough to give people an escape. My view of broadband is it's a lot of things. It's good things. It's bad things. it's, it's, it's part of all our lives now. And some of the best part of it is just, it's a way to reach other people. It's a way to feel socially involved. Sometimes it's just a way to get out of your own life and escape into a next one. I think that maybe we'll end on this last question, which is, um, you know, if you have any advice for people who are in uh, served by an electric co-op and uh, their electric co-op doesn't have an interest, uh, maybe management or the board is um, too worried about the risk of this or they just don't see the value, what advice do you give them? It always takes, in every case I know, every co-op that my partner and I work with, and, and we're working now with several dozen co-ops around the country, um, which is a fraction. I mean, there's eight. There's over 800 electric co-ops in the country, uh, but this is still early days. It always takes somebody to to take a leadership role within the co-op. It could be the CEO or general manager. It could be a member of the board. It could be the board president. It has to be led. I mean, we give advice. We write business plans. Uh, we, we, we have materials relationships. We can get we can get help people get funding. Uh, we can do fiber design. We can manage the construction process. But all of that is just the implementation piece. What I know to be true is every cooperative in the country can build a fiber to the home network. Uh, the business case gets harder the more remote you are, uh, and in those cases, we encourage co-ops to work together because if you can get some more scale, uh, it helps the business case. Uh, and and I, look, I I know because I've, I've been approached sometimes by members of a co-op and they've asked and I've talked to their CEOs and the CEO's not interested, which is fine because look, this is this is still viewed as a risk to folks. Uh, and even though I think the risk runs the other way, I think the risk runs to not doing anything. The risk runs to not building. Um, you know, I know it. I know that it scares some people. I, I think we'll reach the point inside of a year or 18 months where we'll go from the early uh, pioneers in this to where it becomes common. We'll reach that tipping point. I don't know if it's when 100 co-ops are building or 150 co-ops, um, but I think we'll reach that tipping point inside of 18 months, and then it will become commonplace and nobody will even wonder within a few years about it. And, 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 you know, it will be like the expectation that you can get electricity. You can get fiber. And people shouldn't settle for something less than the same kind of service you get. Same kind of service I have in my home, which is fiber into my home, delivered by Verizon. 
and it's great. And there is no reason that this country can't do today what our forefathers were able to do in the 30s, which is deliver to rural areas the same kind of economic opportunity, same kind of education opportunity, same kind of life that you can get in the rest of the country. I just wanted to point out that um, based on your timeline, which I, I fully believe we're seeing just incredible activity from not only electrics, but also the telephone cooperatives, um, you're not going to have connectivity that's as good in rural areas and as cities. Frankly, the connectivity in rural areas will far exceed what many of us have because we'll mostly be on cable and, and a last generation technology that probably won't significantly upgrade to offer the same capacity and, um, and, and, and other benefits one has from the next generation networks. So that's something to, to really cheer, I think. Yeah, I know my, my, my partner, Randy, has, uh, has a slide he shows when he makes presentations about uh, in rural Missouri, in Como, central Missouri, where he was from, the internet speed done by some speed test showing the fastest speeds available in the country. And there in rural Missouri was his system, and it was showing as the third fastest internet speed available anywhere in the country. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be a great thing if people had a reason to move out to rural areas. And, you know, one, one, one thing that folks in rural areas know is that population is declining. For the first time in this country, between the 2000 and 2010 census, population declined in a part of the country. Population declined in rural America. I'm not saying this turns it all around, but you're right. You get a better level of service where these where these uh, networks are being built. Wouldn't it be great to have a reason to to move out into the wide open spaces and still have access? to everything, to all of the information and entertainment and social connection uh, that anybody has anywhere. It's not a pipe dream. It's, it, it, it's happening today. Uh, all you have to do is look at Como in Missouri or Midwest in Michigan or Bark in Virginia or Ozarks and North Arkansas in Arkansas North Georgia uh, Network, uh, North yeah, you Georgia get... Network, Habersham Electric, all across the country, people are proving this out. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about this. Uh, it's something we're going to keep covering, certainly, and uh, I'd like to check it back in with you as you uh, move forward with uh, more companies you're working with, more of the co-ops. Thank you. It's been great talking to you, as always, Chris. That was Chris talking with Jonathan Chambers, partner at Connexon and former head of the Office of Strategic Planning and Policy Analysis at the FCC. As electric cooperatives make strides across rural America, we will continue to share their stories on muninetworks.org. Remember, we have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter also, where the handle is at MuniNetworks.org. Subscribe to this podcast and all of the podcasts in the LSR podcast family on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. We want to thank the group Mojo Monkeys for their song Bodacious, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 229 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Mm-hmm.